Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. With new frontiers developing in spaceflight, it's more important than ever to make sure we get the forecast right. There are many variables meteorologists have to monitor, cloud cover, precipitation, cloud height, and even electric potential. To make sure every launch goes off without a hitch, you need a team of skilled, dedicated forecasters like those found at the 45th Weather Squadron. Today, we're happy to welcome Brian Sizek, who serves as a launch weather officer. He'll offer inside looks at these forecasts, how they're made, and why they need to be so accurate. Let's get started in T minus three, two, one. Ah, I love that by the producers. Nice touch there, Heather and Sarah. Uh, but Brian, welcome. So, welcome to the Weather Geeks podcast. It's always fascinating to talk to someone like me who likes weather, but also is a little bit of a, a toe in the space world, too, so to speak. Yes, I like it. I love that uh, the countdown on your intro there. I was ready to run up to the roof and watch along. So. <laughs> see, see if you got any high anvil clouds or anything you need to be worried about. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was checking the radar real quick, make sure we were good for one. No, before we really dive into this fascinating world that you work in, we always ask our Weather Geeks guests, how'd you get interested in weather? What was your experience? What was your sort of entry point into this fascinating world we, we work in? Sure. So like, like a lot of meteorologists, like a lot, a lot of weather geeks, I was, I've been fascinated with the weather since a young age. I grew up in the Philadelphia area, actually. So uh, I was really interested in those nor'easters. Uh, I loved, you know, checking the snow forecast, watching the weather channel, watching all the local channels, you know, you got Glenn Hurricane Schwartz, he's going, you know, six to 12 inches. You have Cecily Tyne, she's going eight to 14, you know, listening to KYW and trying to come up with a, with a snowfall forecast myself. So I love the nor'easters. I've also had a fascination with uh, severe weather as well. So from that young age, probably around second grade, I was always really interested in the weather. But it was really those nor'easters and the snowfall that, uh, that really got me interested. And shout out to Glenn Hurricane Schwartz, who has been a recent guest on the Weather Geeks podcast there. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to his episode, it, it is live on our podcast site. Make sure you check that out because I know he has influenced a lot of young meteorologists over his day in that market. Um, yeah. You work for, let me just, before we really uh, continue, let me give some of your credentials. Uh, you're launch weather officer with the U.S. Air Force 45th Weather Squadron at Cape Canaveral. You have a Bachelor of Science in Meteorology from Penn State University, one of the fine programs in the country, and, and a BA in yep. Political Science and Government. My, my wife has a, a, B, a BA in Political Science as well. Uh, you are a former broadcast meteorologist and a National Weather Service intern. So definitely know your stuff when it comes to weather. But for the listeners, tell us about the interesting relationship between the Weather Squadron. It's actually a part of the 45th Space Wing, which I believe is Air Force, but as you were explaining to me uh, off the air, you're also a part of the Space Force now? Kind of decompose all of that for the listeners. Sure. The whole process is a little bit confusing, especially with the Space Force standing up as a new branch of the military. So 
the way the Space Force is structured, it falls under the Department of the Air Force. So you have the Department of the Air Force with the Secretary of the Air Force heading that up. And then you have the branch of the Air Force, and then you have the Space Force that both fall under that. So we are under the 45th Space Wing, which does now fall under the United States Space Force. However, for weather folks, we are still being manned by uh, Air Force weather officers and Air Force enlisted uh, who are in that career field. And in terms of the civilians, we're just considered Department of the Air Force civilians because the Air Force and the Space Force both fall under that Department of the Air Force. So we're supporting the Space Force. We're still falling under the 45th Space Wing, which uh, falls under the United States Air Force. But a lot of our active duty folks, they're still coming from the Air Force weather career field. So there's a lot of moving parts with this. There's still things that could change with that. But that's my current understanding. I know there's still ongoing conversations in terms of how to exactly structure that. So. Yeah, we'll be watching to see how it all sorts out uh, over the next uh, few months to years. Now, right. you mentioned something I wanted to kind of clarify. Uh, to be in the world that you work in, uh, you don't necessarily have to be uh, enrolled enlisted in the military. I don't, I don't think your background is military, right? No. So we actually have a mix of civilians, enlisted, and officers. So we have active duty and civilians as well. So I work alongside a lot of folks uh, in uniform. Uh, there's a, a couple working on the ops floor right now. So we have enlisted folks, then we have the officers, and then the civilians. So we have a good mix uh, of the different types of folks that work here well, from all different backgrounds as well. There's a fellow Florida State alumni, alum of a colleague of mine that I think works there somewhere, Neil Rao. Is he somewhere in that world or has he moved on? <laughs> um, he might have moved on. I'm not sure. I don't I don't think he's with the 45th Weather Squad. Yeah, you know, he funny. may not be. I think he was more on the research side. I, I don't know exactly okay. what he did. He, he, he was sort of, I think he's kind of a branch level or boss level person in terms of what he does. But yeah. you're right. He may be more on the modeling side somewhere in the, more on the R&D side. Yeah. Of that. So I don't think he's in the operational side. That That's my bad. But, but shout out to Neil Rao. Yeah, I will say we do have a, a decent Florida State contingency here, though. Our current commander of the 45th Weather Squadron is a Florida State alum. Uh, we have a, a launch weather officer as well. So we kind of have a friendly rivalry between yeah, the, uh, the different I, college I, I meteorology bet. programs. Yeah, I, yeah. I bet, although both of our football teams are pretty bad right now. Yeah, uh, so, but, yeah we, don't, we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> we, we definitely don't. But let's let's yeah. talk about your career before you got there, because you went into broadcast meteorology first. Um, yes. So talk about what, what sort of motivated you to go there and then how you made the shift. Yeah, so I've had a bit of an interesting path for sure. So as you mentioned, I do uh, – have a degree in political science from Washington University in St. Louis. I was minoring, I minored in earth science there. I've always loved the weather, but uh, another passion of mine uh, in high school was baseball. And I had the opportunity to play division three baseball at WashU. So I, I decided to go there and I was going to try to uh, kind of craft maybe a meteorology type of program in their earth science. But a lot of their, their classes were stuff that happens below the surface of the earth instead of above the surface. So I ended up minoring in earth science, took all the math and physics requirements in the, in the case that I wanted to go back and get a meteorology degree. So I did that. Uh, so I had a lot of the prereqs and then I, I graduated with a degree in political science, I ended up working in the healthcare software industry for a little under a year that had nothing to do with anything I studied. So we don't need to go into the details of that. So, but that really, let's just say it wasn't the best fit for me. And that really inspired me, you know, I'm going to go and do something that I really love. And that's meteorology. So uh, coming from the Philadelphia area, both my parents are, are Penn Staters. So Penn State was the, the obvious decision for me to go there. So I was able to work, work with them and get some of my classes to transport 
transfer. So I was able to get my BS to meteorology. I was only there for two years because I was able to go right into those meteorology classes, having those math, physics, chemistry classes already done. So I'm glad I was able to take those. So I got my degree in meteorology and I was planning on going into TV there. Uh, I was working my final semester at Penn State on weekends out at WFMZ 69 News in Allentown. So I would travel out there every weekend. I had some parents, friends that would uh, allow me to stay with them. Shout out to uh, Barb and Jack Duncan. Uh, but anyway, so I would stay with them on the weekends, then head back to Penn State to take classes. So I was planning on, on working there or working on the TV station after I graduated. But we had a meteorology career fair in the department in March. And um, so the commander of the 45th Weather Squadron at the time, Colonel Don Shannon, he came to recruit for this new position. Uh, there was a program called Palace Acquire for uh, recent graduates. It's a civilian program where you start as a GS-7, then a 9 in year 2, then an 11. So it's kind of a step program. And they were looking for somebody, a recent graduate, to uh, go into that position. So I was watching this presentation, and I was just kind of in awe as I'm watching it. And he's a, he's a great presenter. And I'm like, this sounds like the coolest thing I've ever heard. So long story short, I went up, I talked to him. And, um, you know, we, we kind of hit it off and I spoke to him the next day as well. And then next thing you know, fast forward, here I am. So it was uh, something that I was, I was in the right place at the right time. And I just kind of kept an open mind and it just sounded like a really cool opportunity. So now I'm here. Well, and, and for those young listeners out there, as a, I'm Marshall Shepard, director of the University of Georgia's Atmospheric Sciences Program, we have speakers come in like that. And that's a really good example that they actually can influence the course of your career. I think that's a good example. Yeah. Talking with Brian Sizek, a launch weather officer with the 45th Weather Squadron. So let's dive in. Tell us about your day-to-day as a a weather, launch weather officer there uh, at the 45th Weather Squadron. What does it involve on a launch day? And then after that, on a day like today, perhaps when you may not be dealing with launch. And by the way, I think people may not realize there are far more launches that go on than the ones that are covered in the media about the former space shuttle launches or the big SpaceX launches these days. There are a lot, there's lots of launch activity there. Tell us all about what you're up to on those days and, and without uh, launches. Sure, absolutely. So I'll just break down. We really have two different operational uh, flights in our squadron or two sides that we do. So we have our we're actually, we function at kind of like a little mini weather service office. So that's what's manned by our, our enlisted forecasters. And we call that resource protection. So they man the operational floor 24-7, 365, and they're issuing those daily forecasts. They also issue watches, warnings, and advisories that are tailored for Kennedy Space Center and Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, in addition to Patrick Air Force Base. So they are issuing a lot of the watches, warnings, and advisories, some of which are similar to the weather service. Other are tailored. Uh, for the spaceport. So for instance, last night, uh, we had a 40 degree temperature advisory that we issued for Kennedy Space Center. So they have some equipment out there that we have to uh, monitor for for resource protection. There's $20 billion worth of assets uh, on KSC and Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. So we are, you know, we're we're making sure those stay safe as well as 25,000 personnel that are a lot of which work outside on operations. So we're making sure those folks stay safe. So then in terms of the launch side, so that's the, our resource protection side. And then we have the launch side. So that's uh, kind of the, the launch weather officer realm. So we are issuing forecasts leading up to the launch, but it's not just the launch itself. There's a lot of what we call the generation phase of the launch where they're doing ground operations, where they're rolling the rocket out. They're rolling out 
the mobile support tower. They're stacking the rocket. They're putting the, the payload or the satellite on top of the rocket. So a lot of those are weather sensitive. So we are issuing forecasts for that. And then, of course, the launch. That's the excited part. So we are issuing uh, our launch mission execution forecast. So that's what you might see when you see probability of violation or probability of go. That is coming from us. So that's uh, using, uh, we'll, we'll get in, I'm sure we'll get into the launch commit criteria. So we're evaluating the weather conditions that we think might lead to some of those potential violations. So that's that a percent of probability that we're issuing. And then on the day of launch, of course, we come in here, we have a team of about uh, six or seven people, depending on the, the weather situation. And we're coming in here and we're evaluating if those launch commit criteria are being violated. And in addition, not just that, also the user constraints. So the, the launch commit criteria are evaluated for every single launch. Then the user constraints vary based on the type of ro rocket, the launch provider, that kind of thing. So we're evaluating all the weather rules that we have to make sure are safe in order to launch. And then once the launch happens, we, uh, we, we watch the launch. We're all very happy once that goes off. And then for some, in some cases, for instance, with SpaceX, they reland their rocket oftentimes on a drone ship out in the Atlantic Ocean. So we are issuing forecasts for the recovery as well. They're interested in, in winds, wave heights, that kind of thing. So there's a lot that goes into it besides just the, the day of launch. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Brian Sizik, a launch weather officer at the 40th Weather Squadron. And he just gave you a little peek into his world. And we're going to continue to go there. I mean, this is a fascinating topic. And so we're going to dig deep. You, you, you talk about the launch uh, weather commitment. And I know there's a process by which you, I mean, even, I guess, days out and then up to launch, even minutes perhaps up to launch, there are these criteria that you look at. Tell us about what some of the key, and, and by the way, they may not be some of the factors people think about. I mean, I, I, people, oh, it's raining. I mean, those are kind of obvious things, but there are things that you all look for that may not be intuitive to people. Tell us about what some of those things are. Right. So the, uh, the launch commit criteria, really, they're designed to prevent a lightning strike. Now, everybody knows about natural lightning. If there's a thunderstorm in the area or right over the launch pad, obviously, we don't want to launch through that. But there's also a phenomenon known as triggered lightning, rocket-triggered lightning. So when you launch a rocket through the atmosphere, you can actually amplify the, the electric field by up to 100 times. So there are conditions and there are cloud types that, won't, that aren't strong enough to produce 
natural lightning, but when you launch a rocket through it with that ionized plume that goes down to the surface, that can actually trigger a lightning strike. And it's happened a few times in history. A lot of people don't know that Apollo 12 was struck by uh, triggered two triggered lightning strikes. Luckily, they were able to fix some of the issues on board and it didn't affect the mission. But there was a catastrophic event in 1987, Atlas Centaur 67, that was that triggered a lightning strike. About, I think it was around 48 seconds in. The lightning strike flipped one bit on the onboard electronics and the rocket thought vertical was 90 degrees in the horizontal. Oh, wow. So the rocket started going sideways. It started burning up and range safety actually had to remotely blow up the rocket to not endanger the general public. So that led to a lot of the changes and, and the way we do things here. It led to the lightning advisory panel, which uh, created a lot of these rules. It, it, evaluate, it changed the way that we evaluate the rules. Now we have to be clear and convinced that it's safe to launch. So uh, triggered lightning is the number one thing that we're evaluating. And it's a lot of conditions that aren't strong enough to produce natural lightning. Yeah, and that, that, that's what I thought. I thought that triggered lightning and the lightning in the electrical environment is one of the key issues there. Um, yeah. th does your launch criteria, the weather cr criteria change depending on what you're launching or who you're launching for? Sure. So we have the 10 lightning launch commit criteria. Those do not change for any given launch. So as I mentioned, we have the, the natural lightning rule. So you can't launch a rocket if there's been lightning within 10 nautical miles in the last 30 minutes. But there's also different rules like the cumulus cloud rule. We look at the cloud top uh, temperatures and how far away it is uh, from the pad. So depending on how tall it is, the farther the standoff distance, uh, there's the thick cloud layer rule, which says uh, if, the, if there's a thick cloud layer between zero and minus 20 Celsius at a certain thickness, we can't launch because that could hold a charge. Uh, so th those are the kind of the things that, that we're evaluating uh, as, you know, throughout the launch process to make sure that, that we don't, uh, you know, trigger a lightning strike. But there are also constraints known as user constraints or user criteria. Uh, they, those change for every given type of launch. So the different launch providers, whether it's SpaceX, whether it's United Launch Alliance, they have different criteria based on the type of rocket, based on the payload or the satellite, or whether there's now humans on board. So there are, as well, different constraints based on the type of rocket. Yeah, I was wondering about that. One question I had, just got out of curiosity, um, before I kind of get back into my line of questioning, because I, I, <laughs> I, I used to be a scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and people that didn't understand that NASA has research scientists studying the Earth system and climate and so forth would ask me, so do you do forecasts for the shuttle launches and those types of things? So right. these folks are the people that did do those types of things. But where I'm going with this question, uh, part of Goddard is, is affiliated with NASA Wallops Flight Facility, which is out off the yeah. Virginia coast and i know they have launch activities there and there's some other launch activities perhaps out west as well who supports the weather activity for those places so uh, we have partners out on the uh, at vandenberg air force base uh, that's the 30th space wing out there so they have a team of launch weather officers so we work pretty closely with them we go over we kind of do our monthly training with them we go over the launch commit criteria uh, Wallops, I know they do follow these same launch commit criteria. They have a team of launch weather officers. I'm not entirely familiar. We don't work as closely with them in terms of, uh, you know, day-to-day -day basis or those monthly trainings, but uh, they do evaluate those launch commit criteria, and they have a team of, of launch weather officers as well. Now, how many launch weather officers are in your organization and where you are um, in general, but then in support of a given mission? 
sure. So I think we have, I, I don't know this exact number. I think we have around eight launch weather officers uh, on the team right now, give or take a couple there. Uh, uh, then on the, on the West coast, there are as well. So, but on a day of launch, so uh, I'll just go over kind of the team that we have and we're in the process of actually updating our team, but I'll go over the traditional uh, day of launch team. So we have the lead launch weather officers. So they're the person that's uh, issuing the forecast leading up to it. They're in communication with the launch provider, whether it be SpaceX, United Launch Provi United Launch Alliance, or NASA. So they are, they're kind of that one point of contact and they're on console. They're communicating with the range, with the launch provider on day of launch. They're issuing the forecast and they would, they would call the go or no go calls for weather over the nets, over the console during the countdown. So they're, they're the kind of that point of communication uh, and that number one point of contact. Then we also have the radar launch weather officer. So we have somebody who's just dedicated to, to evaluating the weather rules using our radar. That's what we use. We have our own radar system, uh, software, as well as our own radar itself. So we're evaluating the rules and that person, we want as least amount of distractions as possible for that person. So they're just focused on the radar. Then sometimes, depending on the weather conditions, we we have a weather aircraft that we contract to help us evaluate some of the rules. So there might be a rule that looks like it's violated on radar. However, uh, when we go to, we send an aircraft up and they say, well, what looks like one cloud layer on radar is actually two distinct cloud layers. So we might be able to get out of a rule using the aircraft. So we have a launch weather officer who's just communicating with our weather aircraft. And then we have kind of the supervisory positions. We have the launch weather commander and the launch weather director. So those are our officers who are just making sure everything's running smoothly and kind of that, that supervisory position. And then we have, of course, our, our range weather uh, forecasters who are on 24-7, 365. So they're evaluating some of those conditions for WWAs and just the general forecasting as well. Now, now you mentioned radar and you mentioned aircraft. Um, what are some of the tools and models you all like to use there in the 45th? I mean, I imagine you're using some of the same things we all are using. I mean, the GFS and GAM and, yeah. and WARF and other things. Yeah. But um, you just tell us about the suite of tools, satellite, in-situ observations, modeling you all use. Yeah, so we have, I mean, we have one of the most densely packed suites of weather sensors anywhere in the world here at Kennedy Space Center and Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. We have our own radar uh, that we use to evaluate uh, just lightning forecasting or some of those launch commit criteria during the launch. We have our own lightning detection network. We have a bunch of winds towers that are measuring not just the winds, but temperature, dew point, all that stuff. Uh, as we're just on a day-to-day -day basis, we have surface electric field mills that we are used during launches to evaluate the the electric field of uh, at the surface. So we have a lot of tools to use during the launch. And then in terms of the forecasting, yes, we do use a lot of uh, the weather, the publicly available weather models that a lot of folks use, but we have to kind of imply what what conditions will lead to those launch commit criteria being violated. You know, these models don't directly output whether the cumulus cloud rule is going to be violated. And then we also have uh, some specific models for us. We have a, a model that was developed several years ago by. Uh, Kennedy Space Center and, and the 45th Weather Squadron that's kind of tailored down at a higher resolution. Uh, we also use the GALWEM, which is the Air Force model as well. So we, we use some of those Air Force models and then a lot of the, you know, just to get to check the different models as well. Uh, so we, we use a lot of those models, but we do have to imply from the models what we think, uh, what LCCs, those launch commit criteria are being violated. 
Now, this is fascinating to me because my own doctoral dissertation at Florida State was looking at sort of sea breeze and, and convergent zone convection and, and rainfall. And yeah. I did a modeling study. And so this central Florida is sort of you know, convection and lightning capital of the world. You couple in the sea breeze convection oh, yeah. and the outflow boundaries and so forth. So I've gotten a, an occasional question and maybe you know the answer, maybe you don't. Um, why would we put a launch facility in a place that's so convectively active? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, go ahead. That's a great question. I mean, we... Central Florida is the is the lightning capital of North America, and uh, you know we have the in the in the summertime we have it's very hot and humid, and then we have the sea breezes from both coasts, and that's a big part of our forecasting in the summertime. It's a lot of we look at what we call the regime flow, so the lower level winds will often determine where that sea breeze sets up. So uh, now back to your question is there are some factors in Florida that that are beneficial for launches besides the weather. So for instance, uh, being so far south, the closer the equator you are, the more uh, the more rotation you're getting from the Earth. So if you think about it, when you're on the top of the North Pole, you're kind of just spinning around in a circle. But when you're closer to the equator, you're physically moving through space. So a lot of our launch trajectories actually head out towards the east. So being close to the equator, you can actually use less fuel, and it gives you a little extra push uh, as you're heading out towards the east. So that's one big benefit. So Florida being uh, kind of the, as as far south as you can get in the in the continental U.S. So that that's a benefit. Also, as I mentioned, because a lot of our trajectories are out towards the east, uh, we're we're launching over the ocean. So we're not launching over populated areas. We're not launching over over Disney World. We're not you know launching over a big major city. So that's a big big benefit. If something were to happen for the rocket, it just falls out into the ocean instead of falling over a major city. But as you mentioned, the weather is, is a big factor here. Certainly not the best place in terms of weather, but as I've said before, it helps keep us in point. <laughs> Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. Fascinating discussion with Brian Sizek. I'm really glad you, you agreed to come on to the Weather Geeks podcast. I think I think our listeners are going to really. Hopefully, you're enjoying this as you're listening to it in real time. I know I am. I'm, I'm space geeking out, and I'm and I'm weather geeking out. So, uh, you know, one question I had is, um, who sets the criteria for the launch windows, and then who ultimately makes the go or no go decision in that chain of command? So yeah, that's a good question. So the launch providers are the ones that provide us with those user constraints that I mentioned earlier. So they'll tell us what are our surface wind constraints, what are 
can we fly through precipitation, that kind of thing. Uh, so they kind of give us that criteria. Now, there are also some user constraints for weather that we don't necessarily know. For instance, upper-level wind shear. We feed them the data. They put it into their algorithm, and then that will output whether there's too much loading on the vehicle. So we don't necessarily know what the upper-level wind shear constraints because it changes for each launch, and, it, and it's kind of a black box in terms of giving them the data. So we will provide maybe a risk criteria. We put those on our forecast of, the jet stream is directly overhead and there looks like there's a lot of wind shear. We might say the risk is low, medium, or high, but we don't necessarily know exactly what their upper level wind shear criteria is. So there are some things that we don't necessarily make the, the call on. Now, in terms of the, the launch commit criteria, those, as I mentioned, those stay the same for every launch. So we do provide that go, no go call. We provide that. Then the range would be no go and it's ultimately the launch provider. So whoever's the launch provider, whether it be SpaceX, United Launch Alliance, NASA, that kind of thing. They're the ones that ultimately make the scrub call. But we are giving the weather go, no-go call over the nets. And we can actually call a hold up to the final seconds before T0 as well. Have you been there long enough to observe the change in the culture there? What I mean by that is that you now have these private spaceflight groups, the SpaceX's and the ULA's and so forth, I think a lot of people just perceive that it's NASA there, or perhaps right. maybe the military. But, you know, the space launch business and commercial space business and so forth, and even getting people, the humans to space, has dramatically changed in several, several decades. Uh, what's your perspective on that shift? Right. So I wasn't here during the shuttle era, obviously, but that was there are a lot of things that, that have changed since then, of course. So you have uh, SpaceX has really changed things a lot in terms of the amount of times they're launching and United Launch Alliance. They're kind of the they've been here for a little bit longer. So, yes, yeah, certainly seen a huge increase in commercial space. It's very, very exciting. I feel like I got here at a great time. So I've, I've been here for a little over two years. So I've kind of seen it ramp up in terms of the amount of launches and and in terms of uh, the commercial space. So I wasn't really here for the shuttle era, but from what I hear, it's certainly certainly changed a lot uh, since those days. And it's, it's really a very exciting time to be here, that's for sure. Yeah, it is. And I, I think we're gonna see renewed interest in, I mean, I, I, you know, one of the things that people used to always ask me when I was at NASA, when we stopped launching shuttles or even after that, well, what happened to NASA? Or what happened to the space bar? It's still there. I, I think a lot of people, right. they exactly. just use space shuttles and think that's all NASA does. And NASA has right. a much a broader portfolio as do many of these private companies, the military, a lot of launch activity. You're watching DirecTV or listening to Sirius XM or uh, using your GPS, exactly. all those things have to get to space somehow. So it's a much broader uh, right. activity yeah. than most people think about. Now, I want to ask you some personal questions. I'm going to get in your business. Ooh. Yeah. No, it's not sure. too bad. Don't worry. Curious, what has been the most sort of memorable experience for you so far in your, in your job there? Sure. So I would say probably the first launch that I was the lead launch weather officer on, it was a SpaceX Starlink launch. So that was a, a SpaceX launch, and they provide that's their own satellite that they're trying to provide uh, broadband internet to rural areas that don't get a lot of internet. So I was, that was my kind of certification launch. And so I was leading the launch weather officer in that. So just being on console, just thinking about, you know, a lot of all the training that went into it. And it was kind of the, just watching that launch. It's like all your hard work, you're watching it rip through the sky and it's a very satisfying feeling. So that I would definitely say that the first launch that I was a lead launch weather officer, because you're issuing forecasts leading up to it. You're, 
your communication with a lot of different people. So it's, it's a really great feeling as you're watching a launch go through the sky, uh, knowing that you played a small part in making that happen. On the other side or flip side, what is a particularly challenging moment or forecast that you've experienced? Well, <laughs> being in Florida, we've had plenty of those. So, well, especially working, I started off working on the forecaster desk, working a lot of the uh, the 24-7 forecasts and some of the issuing, some of the watches, warnings and advisories, a lot of time in Florida. So, for instance, we're supposed to get, we try to get 30 minutes of lead time on a, on thunderstorm on lightning prediction. So, uh, so sometimes there might be nothing on radar and then five minutes later, you are getting lightning out of, out of a storm. That's how fast these thunderstorms can grow. So certainly I would say forecasting lightning uh, has been the, the greatest challenge here. And it's something we try to improve on every day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a very challenging forecast environment because we're getting you know, yeah. a little weather geeky here. You're operating in many cases at the convective scale or the mesogamma scale in terms of the mesoscale. Mm -hmm. For those weather geeks out there, I teach the mesoscale class at the University of Georgia. So the mesoscale is sort of, you think meso is sort of middle. It's in between this large scale or synoptic scale uh, where we have the GFS models and so forth. And then you got the convective scale, what's going on in the cloud or in the cumulonimbus and so forth. And challenge, as you well know, as a fellow meteorologist, as, as we get down to those finer scales, our models aren't yeah. necessarily representing some of those things. And we don't necessarily always have observations, although you mentioned you all have a fairly dense observation network there. Right. Got a question for you. As someone that now has been in this career, there may be some aspiring meteorologist out there that wants to do what you do. Uh, what, what's your advice? Sure. So for me, I mean, personally, I would say keep an open mind. I mean, I didn't expect to be doing this. If you were to ask me, you know, four or five years ago, I would have never dreamed that I'd be in the position that I'm in. So keep an open mind. Just try to put yourself in the best position. Uh, you know, get involved. Feel free to reach out to me. Uh, and, and we have a lot of different research products. So we have summer interns that come in and might do a research product. There was actually somebody who just recently reached out to me about doing a research project and I got them in touch with the right people. And uh, they're, they're now going to be doing a research project for us this summer. So don't be afraid to reach out to people, reach out to mentors. We're all very approachable. I'm on Twitter. You know, you can uh, find me on there and, and, and send me a message. That's what somebody just did. So, you know, we're looking for folks that, that can help us out. And, and like I said, just keep an open mind, just work hard and, and you never know where, where you might end up. What, what, what's your Twitter for you personally? And then for your squadron? So we, we do not currently have a, uh, a weather squadron okay. Twitter. Uh, I'm just at CycloneCysicWX on, on Twitter. So uh, sometimes I'll tweet some launch weather-related stuff. But, uh, you know, feel free to reach out on me there if anybody has any further questions. And uh, we're, we're looking, you know, there might be some, some folks that are looking to get involved with research projects, some students out there. So we're, we're, we're happy to work with those. We, we actually work with a with a high school, we work with different colleges. So we, we're always trying to improve our processes here and we're always happy to answer questions and, uh, and that kind of stuff. So one, one final question, we're, we're recording this or taping this in early to mid December. I don't know exactly when it will air, but what, what do you have coming up? I mean, any, any big launches coming up or are you kind of on a, is this a down period? So uh, we actually have a fairly busy December. We have uh, we actually have a, a couple launches this week. We have a ULA launch. We have a, a SpaceX launch that are both 
both launching various different types of satellites. Uh, we, we obviously just launched our, our uh, astronauts a couple of weeks ago, so that was very exciting. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're continually launching satellites coming up. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're even, even though we're getting to December around the holidays, around the new year, when a lot of things die down, we're, we're, still, we're still pretty busy here doing launches. So have a couple coming up in the next few weeks. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. But before we go, I've got to do the Geek of the Week. This episode's Geek of the Week is Sarah Griffin. Sarah works as a meteorologist at the Cooperative Institute for Meteorological and Satellite Studies, better known as SIMS. Her most memorable weather event was flying a mission into a hurricane and collecting invaluable observations. Part of her job is to provide satellite data for the use during aircraft missions. She also uses satellite data to assess and improve the accuracy of forecast models, including how to better predict tropical cyclones. To find out more about Sarah's great work, you can check her out on Twitter at SMGRIFF00. Keep up the excellent work, Sarah. And Brian, thank you so much as well for what you do and all of your colleagues there. It's a service to the nation. So on behalf of all of us at the Weather Channel and Weather Geeks, thank you for your service. Thank you very much, Dr. Shepard. It was an honor and a pleasure to be on here today. And uh, I, I'm a fan of your podcast. I've, I've seen your work in the past, so it was, it was great to be on here. Oh. Uh, so thank you. Oh, happy to have you. And uh, perhaps we'll have you back at some point. And thank you all for continuing to listen to the Weather Geeks podcast. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.